Queer Business Success, the podcast for LGBTQIA business owners, aspiring entrepreneurs, coaches, caregivers, and the allies who love our community. We tell the stories of why our businesses were formed, who we serve, our challenges and successes, and we offer sound advice to our fellow queer entrepreneurs. Our hope is to inspire, enlighten, and highlight the services that our LGBTQIA businesses and allies offer. If we can do this, so can you. We believe that we need more LGBTQIA business owners, not only for our community, but for a better world. Here's our host, Anne-Marie Zanza. Hi, this is Amory Zanzel here. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Business Success. I'm so excited to welcome to the show today, Ben Stimson. Ben identifies as gay, non-binary, and they are a therapist practicing in both Ontario, Canada, and in the United King- Kingdom, niching spe- specifically to work with the queer community. Ben has spiritual psychotherapy training and is a member of the British Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists. Ben has been practicing since 19. 19- 2019, when they suffered a catastrophic loss of business during the pandemic lockdowns, and Ben recovered and now works full-time as a therapist. Because they niche into spiritual psychotherapy modalities, Ben has a forthcoming book through Llewellyn Worldwide, one of the world's largest metaphysical publishers called Ancestral Whispers, out in September. Ben is also the child of retired entrepreneurs who successfully ran their own six-figure microbrewery for 25 years. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I'm looking forward to this because I've been speaking so much about my book lately. It's yeah. going to be refreshing to talk about something else. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's talk because I first of all would love to know your queer story a little bit. Would you like to share it with us? Absolutely. So I um, I came to Canada when I was eight, eight and a half years old. And as soon as I stepped off that plane, I was different. And then those differences just continued to take place. So I suddenly had an accent. I was suddenly foreign and we moved to a little tiny town of about 8,000 people, like really middle of nowhere, Southern Ontario, um, Letter Kenny, if you, if you know that television show. Why? So, I'm just so curious why your parents moved to someplace so obscure. Well, um, when, when we were in the UK, they had actually, um, they were originally from Manchester. Mm-hmm. which is a city of about 6 million people, a really big, huge city. And uh, and they wanted to have that quiet life. Both of them are from rural settings. So they originally moved to North Wales. So I was born in North Wales. Mm-hmm. And to give your American um, listeners a perspective, it would be like if someone was to move from, say, Los Angeles to Northern California or mm-hmm. from New York to, say, Vermont or like mm-hmm. um, New Hampshire, somewhere like that, right? Mm-hmm. So really very much going from... Um, you know, middle of civilization to very rural, very quiet, very peaceful. And so when they moved over here, um, the area we moved to is about two and a half hours outside of Toronto, but it, it was in more of a rural, um, less developed area. Um, the roads were, there was only one major highway going up and, uh, and the whole landscape reminded them of North Wales. And so they thought, you know, this this feels like home. And in truth, I am actually glad that we moved there because it, it turned out not to be a bad town to grow up in. But I was this little little British kid with a funny accent and um and we moved to the middle of nowhere. And uh, and then as I grew older I started to realize that I was queer. I was gay. 
I held that secret for a while. And it was around the year 2000 and 2001 when I started to realize that um, I'm in my mid thirties now. And uh, and so I decided, you know what, I'm going to come out. And around that time, there was a lot of talk about like gay straight alliances. Um, there was more visibility on television and it was very much a different culture from even five or 10 years before. So I, I founded a small uh, gay straight alliance in my school. I came out, I was one of the only gays in the village, you know. Or the and only out gay in the village. The only out gay, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and it, it is in truth that that caused some issues for me because a lot of the other gay students who were still in the closet just did not want anything to do with me. So that caused a lot of, of issues for me. Well, and um, actually that was really like part of gay culture back in the day because my wife came out in like in the 1980s mm-hmm. and she talks about how so it was like people who were closeted didn't want to be seen with the out gay person because they didn't want people to know that they were gay. It's exactly it. It's like mm-hmm. how isolating for everybody. Well, and, and in like I've connected with a few of them since then and they've apologized for, you know, some of the things that they said to me over some of the looks they gave to me. And uh, and now, you know, looking backwards, it's totally understandable. It's not yeah, pers- it's understandable. Absolutely. It's understandable, but, right. Yeah. So, so it's, it's hard when in the moment, because, you know, I think we all know, we all have a sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was very, it was very isolating, but it was something that I did. And then at, from that, I, I started working with the school board. I got really into kind of volunteering around queer issues. And then I, I ended up going to Toronto and started studying social work. Um, some things happened for me and I didn't end up finishing my, um, my, my degree. And in the intervening years, I went and studied um, psychotherapy. So I really went from... Uh, um, kind of middle of nowhere to the city, back to middle of nowhere again, and then to a, a kind of a mid-range town. Um, but I, I, I only really started to really feel comfortable in myself about 10 years ago when I was in my mid-20s. And then during the pandemic, I actually um, started to discover that I was non-binary. So the idea, and I, that, that's a very common thing. A lot of my guests on my own podcast are, are queer practitioners and uh, of spiritual modalities, and a lot of them tend to be non-binary trans as well. That seemed, there was something about that isolation that really caused people to do some introspective work. So there I am. Yeah. In my own business and during the pandemic, because I work with people coming out later in life, well, Mm -hmm. that's part of my business. I also do purposeful empowerment, which is my business coaching business. Uh, They, the pandemic, I had an uptick. People were all of a sudden having to spend time, having to do introspection, having to spend time alone. And the pandemic really changed a lot of people's lives often in a positive way, but you had to do some sort of business shuffling in the pandemic because it closed your other business down, which was what? Well, so I was actually um, at that time. So 2019, September 2019, I finished my psychotherapy training. Uh, for two years, I was doing training up in Toronto and living in a place called Hamilton. And I was working full time at a, a little bakery while also doing schooling on uh, on weekends. So September comes, I graduate. I have a gaggle of about 15 clients. I'm like, oh, this is great. I have my own office. Um, it's wonderful. And then the pandemic hit and all of them were laid off and nothing, uh, nothing could happen. The little bakery job that I was also working also laid me off. So I was like, oh, I suddenly I had nothing. 
the Ontario government, the Canadian government actually was very helpful. They gave us a lot of funding for those of us who had lost our, our businesses. And, uh, and unfortunately, I had to give up my office because there just was no way I was going to be able to afford that. Mm-hmm. So I started working online. Started, I had a lot of time. I moved to a new city, actually. Um, uh, and it was very strange for pandemic. A lot of interesting opportunities came up for me. So it's, it felt like my chapter in Hamilton had closed. I moved home with my parents for a few months and then a spot opened at a co-op housing um, that I had applied for uh, for September. And September was always this place that I had always thought, OK, something's going to happen in September. My clinical supervisor at the time had a place in her place open for me. So I had a new office. It was smaller, but but I was able to actually get back into working with clients again. And so for a few months, I kind of struggled. Around that time, I was also writing my book too. And because I had just newly graduated, I didn't have really a sense, you probably understand this yourself, I didn't really have a sense of, okay, who are my clients? Who are the type of clients that I want to attract? Beforehand, it was because I was a student, anybody who I could get my hands on to get my client hours up. Right? It makes sense. Yeah, everybody take, does that. Everybody does that, right? So what I ended up doing was we have a big referral network up here in Ontario online. And uh, and I was putting my name down for everybody. And so then a more seasoned therapist in the field um, took me aside and she said, Ben, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my name out there. No, she said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. She said, exactly. So you need to sit down and think about what are you doing? What are the types of clients you want? What are your strengths? Like she gave me a coaching and she really did an amazing coaching session. Well, what it and sounds like you needed clarity. Honestly, it's so funny because every time I do podcasts, like I'll have two or three in a row, there's always a theme. Mm-hmm. Is this the theme for today? No, the theme was actually, you mentioned it, was imposter syndrome, but that was the theme for today. And I had an amazing guest that we had a long talk about that. But but also what we did talk about mm-hmm. as a, when we were talking about being coaches is this, when you get really anxious, you tend to, I love what you're, this person, this mentor said to you, we say, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to make money. I got to make money. I got to make money. I'm going to take this person. I'm going to take this person. I'm taking this person because I need to, or And oftentimes we have the skills to help that person. That's not the issue. The issue is, is when we do that, we take away from our purpose. That's exactly it. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm very capable to be a grief counselor. I could, you know, and occasionally I have taken grief counseling clients, Mm. but every time I do, it's like, okay, this is taking me away from my other purpose because it's about an, you know, an hour of time and, and, you know, so, so it sounds like somebody sort of schooled you and said, okay, Ben, you're casting your seed too wide. Way too wide. And and the most important thing she said to me, which actually really helped my imposter syndrome piece was she said, when you do that, when other colleagues are seeing you putting your name so often, what that tells them is that you actually don't have expertise in anything. Because if you're putting, if you're casting your seeds out wide, if you're casting your net out wide, then your identity as a therapist and really what you know is not coming forward, right? Exactly. It diminishes. It absolutely exactly. diminishes. So she gave you some really good great. advice. And and then, so what did you decide to do? So this is the most, this is really the, the linchpin of it all. So I was making maybe $600 a month from clients, my little gaggle of clients, and I wasn't gaining any. After she said that, I sat down, that was in January of 2021. Mm-hmm. I sat down and I, I I really looked at what what who are the clients that I want to gain? Well, I really want to work with the queer community because mm-hmm. that's really my community. I really want to work with individuals who are like earth-centered community, like the hippie community, the new age community, because I get that. Some of the modalities I was trained in really connects with them, meditation, family systems, and whatnot. 
those are the two communities that are my people, right? Mm-hmm. So I sat down and I looked and I, I said, okay, well, this, these are the people I want to, to gain. So I fo- refocused, I went, I revamped my social media, I revamped my website um, to really emphasize those strengths, my experiences with those communities and really put that out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I started a small podcast as well, so I could start to build a social media profile for myself. And uh, within three months, I went from $600 to $1,500 to $2,000. Mm-hmm. Just the span of three months, it it uptipped. And at the same time, I, I had um, gotten a beautiful little job at um, at a, a, lo- a local bookstore. Mm-hmm. And so I continued doing that bookstore job. And within a year, I was able to quit that because I was making $3,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it was all because I really focused. I narrowed. I went after the the clients that I could work with and felt comfortable working with, and really solidly felt like we could have a good working relationship with. And I started to focus focus my attention in those specific areas. Right. Well, and I think that's a lot of times when people are beginning coaching coaches or counselors mm-hmm. or therapists is that they really truly are able to help a lot of people, like we said. But then. You know, but then when we really focus, but also what I hear you doing is you were declaring who you were. Exactly. That's exactly. Which is also scary right now sometimes in the queer, you know, because it's, uh, you know, we're both queer and sometimes it's not very friendly out there. I'm very like, it's so interesting because like when I start going outside my circles in Facebook and doing more advertising, general advertising, I get such hate on my posts Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so what I ended up doing was weighing, okay, is this good, good for my mental health to have to deal with this? And so I took the post, I took the ads down because I, for, for my own self-care, I did not need to see the hate from people who are ignorant. (laughs) Right. That's exactly it. Yeah, I, I feel very fortunate in that way because the way that I've built my business is really through networking. I, I, I feel like I'm na- by now and um, really an accomplished networker. And I, I get that from my dad and my mom. They, they were both mm-hmm. networks. Uh, they had to be networking when they were building their own business up. But what I found is that like when I started to really put myself forward as, you know, this is my identity, I could still work with all of the other issues that I had been putting my name down. But suddenly it was with, with queer clients. Mm-hmm. Right? And so when somebody came, a, a, um, a very classic way a referral happens for me is somebody wants to work with grief, for example, but they want to work with somebody who they feel safe that they can talk right. about losing their partner. And they're not sure about this particular therapist because they're not part of the queer community. So that therapist will send them to me or to some uh, somebody like me, just so that foundation is there. We may not even talk about, so you're queer, tell us about that. Yeah, no. You know, it's not that, but they want no, to be able to have that resemblance. Well, and it's so interesting because when I used to be a grief therapist, I always was really like knowing that queer couples where a partner has died, a lot of times they didn't feel safe in groups of straight people, though sometimes the straight people were super kind. and oh, Lovely people. Yeah, absolutely. they were just kind. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times in straight, inadvertently, a lot of times a straight group doesn't value the depth of the relationship with the queer partners. Um, now that we have marriage in the United States, a little bit different. 
But a lot of times people, when they've never talked about their their partner before, their queer partner before in a group of people that are heteronormative, it can be also very terrifying to talk about that. And a great moderator, if something happens, like, you know, will shut that down immediately. But a lot of times people don't. That's why like queer folks, really, it's really important to often find somebody who's queer to be with you just because, you know, you're absolutely safe. safe. Think about everything. Like, yeah. Yeah. And also aspects of the queer community, which, you know, you may understand identifying as a they he, while aspects of the queer community, I more understand because I identify as being her. And only people that are queer probably understand what I'm talking about. But, but you know, so we, before we got on the call today, on this podcast today, we were talking a little bit about your book mm-hmm. and also about Ancestral. Yes. Ancestral. Yes. And so the name of, can you tell me your name of the book again? Yeah, so um, I have it right here. So it's Ancestral Whispers, A Guide to Building Ancestral Veneration Practices. So this is more of, um, so for those listeners who are more of a spiritual bent and more connected with spiritual communities, this book is a um, really a very long 270-page therapy session. It is asking you about relationships with your spiritual practice, tradition, background, when it comes to ancestral work. And I feel like, you know, at least in the West, we have a very strange relationship with death and the Dead. We don't tend to want to connect with them culturally. And this causes a lot of, you, you know this from your grief work, I'm sure. We tend to create voids for when people die. When people die, they're gone. Because partly the Judea, like the Christian uh, culture that we come from, or the overworld view, when you look at other cultures, there is implanted into the culture spaces for those dead people to continue to be a presence in life now. Whether it be just as an enshrined individual somewhere in the home or in the community somewhere. And so, so that relationship with the dead then isn't as some voided past person that just needs to be ignored because it makes us uncomfortable that they're dead. They're instead part of the community and very capable in the belief systems to, you know, lash out when you're not giving them attention, give blessings when you are, and so on and so on. So this book is really a kind of a therapy session between you and your ancestors for those who are part of those spiritual traditions. On a different level, it's about finding then yourself. This is the kind of the more therapeutic lens with this. In finding and looking, and you mentioned that you are very connected with family systems theory, you know, the understanding that we are not vacuums, we are not created in vacuums, we are created in contexts that are built from contexts that are built from contexts. So I, I sat down, ancestor work I, f- I saw when I when I first came out of my program and I, in 2019, I started looking at, you know, what can I offer my clients? What are some of the, the other things? Because it's not just doing therapy sessions, it's now, it, it has to be doing group work, it has to be doing workshops. It has to be doing all of these other things. And so I really connected with ancestor work because I, during my program, I actually did something called a genogram. Now, you know what a genogram is. I'm yeah, I was just thinking about that. I'm yeah, <laughs> right. With this. And I'll, I'll talk to him about the genogram, but go ahead. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, so the genogram, uh, genogram so is. Explain it for people who don't know. Absolutely. It's a very specialized form of family tree. So with traditional family trees, when people are thinking of their ancestors and their family story, they tend to look at family trees and the stories connected to them. Whereas genograms look at issues. They look at relationships. So you'd have a family tree and you would be looking at, okay, how did you know your great aunt relate to your great grandfather? How did your cousin relate to his uncle or her uncle? And so on and so on. In your family of origin, what were the alliances? Who were closest? 
closer to each other, who were not close to each other. And then also tracking information like addictions, some personalities, yeah, issues, I, and I health concerns, all of them. With me, it was always uh, with the you know programs I, were, I was in where we were checking genneograms. It was always in relationship to alcoholism and addiction because a lot of times people who come from a long line of people who struggle with addiction but don't have and like don't have the the addiction problem it may manifest in another way um they often go into caregiving it's true because the personality it was implanted into them you will not be given love unless you give me care in return right and so on so you see those role reversals between parents and children and then when they're when those children have children you see it manifest as well and and so we look at this then like within five or six generations sometimes that those family cultures come down that trauma that grief can come down the generations. But also, and I think I think with genogram work, we often look at the kind of the issues, but I think we can also look at it from strengths because any issue also has a double-sided um, idea of strengths as well. So when I was looking at, at my family history through genogram work, I was like, okay, so uh, workaholism, alcoholism, stress, trauma, but there's also this underlying family story of being a self-made person. So when I really paid attention to, okay, I've got self-employed person here, self-employed person here, I've got black marketeer here, black marketeer here. Both my great-grandfathers were black marketeers during World War One, right? So stories connected to them, like being able to just make money just by walking through a marketplace. You know, they walk through a marketplace and they'd have a profit by the end, right? So looking at that family and those stories are still so vivid. Like my parents still chuckle at some of these things from their ancestors, right? So then looking back, okay, a couple of generations further, okay, poverty. We're looking at both sides of the family in debtors' prisons, literally, which are was the Victorian, very harsh Victorian social network where if you didn't, if you didn't have any money anymore, you would throw yourself into a debtor's prison to be just so that you just would be given gruel and a bed to sleep on, right? So... I can see, okay, that's the formulation of being self-made people in life. That's where the, the dignity of being a self, uh, an entrepreneur comes in. So then that's the strength. But also was they had no choice. They had no choice. They had no choice. But then when you look at how then the family frames that, they had no choice. It was often seen in that light of, and we had no choice, but we mucked through, right? It's that very typical, English, like very British, lower to working class mentality of pulling up your bootstraps right Right. so there's a moral dimension there and unfortunately that moral dimension also caused a lot of issues in my life and my parents life and so on and so on so looking at that story in that way then i could relate to my ancestors not just through a spiritual way but also in a family uh, system sort of way and i could see in myself okay well i have the gumption within me because of all these people in my past who have made themselves from nothing. And another kind of resounding family tradition is not to give things to the family, not to give businesses down, which is a very harsh way that has come down the family. But the expectation was that we all would go off and do our own thing. So there was a certain freedom in that too. So seeing it from multiple different ways and relating to ancestry in different ways really gave then the the inspiration for me to then go and in some ways permission to to go and do my own thing and make it good. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I have some really practical questions because I'm thinking about people. So I have a like a really practical question. If you are adopted into a family, mm-hmm. what happens with geniograms and the ancestral work? 
And you may or may not know your biological mom or dad. Absolutely. So this is where then, so if we're talking spirituality piece here, yeah. then that's a whole other conversation. If right. we're looking at family work here, you're and being a doctor. About it both ways, like let's yeah. talk about it in the spiritual piece and let's talk about it in the family systems way. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I think, um, I think spirituality and queer, queerness, it seems to be a correlation. A lot of people Absolutely. who are queer end up um, really connecting with their own spirituality in some way. When it comes to adoption piece, the way I would um, look at it is you're being adopted into to a, a form of relationship, right? And in that relationship, you're then connected to other forms of relationship. So I know some, I know in the West, we tend to really focus in on blood mm-hmm. relatives. A lot of what I, I talk about in this book is affinity ancestors and chosen family. So when we look at the queer community in general, you know, we honor our queer ancestors all the time. We honor them through the AIDS quilt. We honor them through pride marches. We honor them through these lineages and these chosen families that we create and we really deeply mourn their loss when they pass away right even like looking at my language like they're not gone they're still part of our culture right so when people are adopted i think i think it becomes more of an issue for westerners because we see then as we we privilege that blood relationship more yeah. on a spirit because i love i love that show on pbs at the finding your roots Oh, yes, yes. I don't know if they have that in Canada. But what is really interesting to me and sort of appalls me, Mm. like when they have somebody who's adopted or they find out somebody's dad's not their dad, then they start focusing on this whole family that is just blood. Yeah. And then I'm like, but what about all the other people? Like, I'm sort of like, there's a problem with this. You need to talk about the blood family and also the family of people that were before your father or mother who adopted you. You know, I, yeah. Right. I have like, I have an ancestress who four generations back was adopted. All we have is her mom, her biological mom's name and her dad's name, which really is a cultural term for the milkman. We don't know who her father was. Yeah. You know, that's very common to in genealogy. But we also have her adopted relatives and all of their family. So one of my family members in the UK really explored that family line. So we have that adopted lineage. In my personal spiritual opinion, it doesn't matter because it comes down to that cultural bias. If you go to non-Western cultures, I I actually was um, chatting with somebody from the podcast group we're on, and uh, we were chatting about her connection with her Ghanaian, English, and Jamaican background. And I asked her, you know, when you look at family, who do you consider family? She said, oh, I'm not really sure. I said, how many aunties do you have? She said, oh, well, that's a, you can't ask a Jamaican how many aunties they have, because it's like (laughs) half a parish, right? Family connections are what we make of it. And so in the West, we really privilege blood relatives, but adopted, I mean, I'm a classicist by nature. So I'm actually, as well as all my other stuff, I'm completing a bachelor's in history as well. When you look at ancient cultures, you would have people adopting all sorts of different people for all sorts of different reasons. And culturally, they were then their son, right? Like the Emperor Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, was adopted by Julius Caesar, even though he wasn't biologically related to him. And from then on, history said Augustus, son of Julius Caesar, there was no question of that he was his son. So I think we have to get over our cultural biases. And then relating then to the whole idea of family story, you're being adopted into a family system and a culture. You're now in that culture. You're adopted and initiated into that family culture. You're part of that family, right? So how about, so when you talk about the spiritual realm, which yes. I mm-hmm. understand, but what do you, for people who are like, oh my gosh, I've never heard this stuff before, mm-hmm. talking about, okay, so there's the whole like genetic family adopt, you know, but then there's also the spiritual piece to it. And 
And I want to tell you, I totally agree with you. I find that queer folks are tend to be deeply spiritual. And so since so many of us often lose our religious traditions when we come out and a lot of times people just reject it and they're done. But I feel like we really need to nurture our more spiritual side within our community because so many of us are so deeply spiritual. And it's true. We are absolutely. And I've always been like a wayfinder. I've always been a, I call myself a spiritual wanderer. I have, Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a wanderer. That's also very common too. I'm the same way. I'm a wanderer too. We're yeah, trying like to it. find home, right? We're trying yeah. to find home. And, and eventually we realize, at least that's where I'm at, that home is with us, right? So wh- whoever we include in that home is home, right? I, and I, I think that is a phase for people to reject because of trauma, religion and spirituality. And then we make it our own. We find the things that work for us, right? Absolutely. You know, when I came out, as you know, I came out later. And it and I re- it was right after my ordination, and that's a whole nother story. But the thing is, is that like for like three or f- about three years, I couldn't talk to the universe, the higher power. I don't. I purposely don't wor- use the word God because God is so extremely loaded. I don't use that word, and it also stilts conversation because your vision of God might be different than my vision of God, and people don't understand that. And so I always use the word like higher power, universe, and stuff like that. But for like three years, no connection. Like. I couldn't even feel a connection, which was really hard for me. But luckily I had some queer mentors. My wife has been out forever Mm -hmm. and also to her cousin who's been out forever. Mm -hmm. And they both talked about like two or three years, four years, 10 years, where they just sort of agnostics. They were more agnostics, never atheists, but they were just like, I can't do this anymore. And one of them, not my wife, but my, my, her cousin, Mark now sings in his Methodist choir in in West Hollywood. Well, that, that's the thing, right? It's um, I, I think that partly when people are experiencing religious trauma on a local level, there can be a tendency to then see all of those traditions as being inherently homophobic. It happened to me. The reason I, I came into neo-paganism and started looking at goddess worship and all of that was because growing up in the town I did, there was 18 churches and the local missionary church held a session about me with all the kids. It was literally an entire worship oh, service with so the youth. Sorry. Oh, it was it was horrific, right? Because, you know, I was the only out gay kid at the time and it was the early 2000s and we could do that. That would never be allowed to happen now. Well, but it was one of those, oh. for a 15 year old, for a oh 15 year old who already feels exactly. Oh, my know? goodness. Yeah. I just OK, we're getting really sidetracked. So. <laughs> We'll talk about that when we get yeah, up. Yeah, for Maybe sure. I'll have you come back sometime. Or I'll have you come on coming out and beyond. Maybe we could, you can come on the other podcast. Oh, that would be fun. Let's I, I would, do that. I would, and and yeah, because yeah. we can talk about all that stuff on this Absolutely. podcast. Absolutely. But let's just, I just want to ask the final question about the spirituality piece. Yes, of course. So what are you talking about when you say that? So, well, I'm glad that this has come up because this is really my niche subject. So this is good. I, I was I was concerned that I would have to be just purely secular business here. So, yeah. so the spirituality piece. So it is seeing, again, that the ancestors and these spiritual figures are real in our lives and that they are potential for relationships. Now, in my particular view, when people die and pass over, 
we're entering a state where they have a much larger view of the world. And so their petty kind of worldly concerns are, are really resolved. I do believe I, I belong to some spiritual traditions where the soul continues to progress afterwards. Death is not just a sitting on a cloud with a harp, right? Yeah. It is a place of working through the things that you experience when life, you know. So I actually had a spiritual experience with my grandfather and it's something called a dumb supper, which is it's kind of like a seance. You sit in a cafe like active um, action a place and you sit uh, across from an empty seat and you have uh, you commune with the dead. We invited whoever we wanted to to sit down. And at that time, I had heard some really negative stories about my grandfather and how he could how he treat my dad. So I said, you know, I invited him in. At first, it was my great grandfather who this the stories of him. He's the one who could just like, you know, he just could make money so easily. He'd just get up and start dancing. Like if he was around now, he would probably be a hippie, right? He was amazing. Yeah. My grandfather was very harsh with my dad. And so I asked him because there were multiple different stories there. My cousin, my dad's cousin says he was the warmest, most happiest man who would give great hugs. And then I hear stories of him treating my dad like expecting perfection from my dad all the time. So I asked him and I said, you know, grandfather, what was that with my dad? Like, what were you doing? What were you thinking? He said, you have to understand. I didn't know then what I know now because he's had much more time to put things into context. He said, I just wanted your dad to be the best he could be. And I didn't want him to take life for granted like my dad seems to do. But that was the part of their relationship that was manifesting with my dad. He said, I'm so proud of who you are and I'm so proud of your dad and what he's built. And, you know, I am really looking forward to seeing him again. And as soon as he said that to me, in my mind, it was all in my mind. I didn't see anything, but I could just feel the mm -hmm. drop mm -hmm. away. That's the sort of relationship I'm talking about spiritually. And that can be done in any sort of different way. The movie Coco is a good example of this, mm -hmm. right? We, um, the Mexican Day of the Dead, erecting altars to the ancestors and thinking about the relationships between all of those people. And then how are we relating to those? It really comes back to that introspection piece. But I think people need to like put up pictures, build shrines, build altars, you know, involve the dead and other spirits in our lives now as a way of not only remembering them, but also in a different way to get out of here. Because we, I think, psychologicalize everything, right? And it's it's a, a negative aspect of, of what keeps us back, I think, in many ways. So I just want to make a recommendation for the people mm -hmm. who are really intrigued by this. I do it. My, I use this wonderful app meditation app called Insight Timer. It is absolutely free which I love. You can, there is a paid membership, but you really don't need that unless you're going to be forming groups on there. And they have several really great getting in touch with your spirit guides, your ancestors meditations. So if you're like, Ugh, I don't think I can do what Ben did sitting at a table, <laughs> there are people that will give you a guided meditation. And I really like there's, I'm going to give someone a shout out. Her name is Pura Rosa and she just does some really nice. I don't even know her. That was a free plug. Um, but she does some really nice spirit guide meditations. So, so Ben, tell me, we're going to get back on track here. And I love this conversation, but 
Tell me, what is the hardest part of your of your business right now? Actually, to be honest, and it's entirely self-made. So for those who are listening, you won't be able to see them. But for those who are going to view the video yeah. eventually, you'll see a wall of boxes behind yeah, me. Yeah, there's wall of boxes behind a wall, A wall of U-Haul boxes. So I, I made a big decision a few years ago because Canada has never been home for me. When I moved here, I didn't have any control and I didn't have any decision in that process. And and it's, it was a traumatic thing for me. Um, so I'm originally from the UK. The UK has always been home. And so I made an active choice a few years ago. I'm going to move home. I'm going to move back to the UK. I've actually worked over there before for a few months. Um, I am still really connected with the culture. And it is actually what really did it for me was I looked in and my psychotherapy training in Canada is recognized over in the UK. So I said, well, why not? I already have this. I have all the skills I need. I can go over. So the most difficult piece right now is building an online practice with UK clients while being over in Canada and trying to build myself a, an income stream so that I can just move and continue to, to generate income. And to do the work you love. Yeah. Exactly. And to do the work I love. Because, I mean, me doing therapy has opened up my life. You know, I I went down from having to work 40 hours a week just to get by to 15 hours a week and mm-hmm. thriving. I've been able to pay for university out of pocket, which I know for the States, that seems like, wow, what, $100,000? No, it's different pricing up here in Canada. Different pricing, right. <laughs> right. But like, that wasn't something I would be able to do if I was like, you know, trying to make ends meet. So that's really the difficult piece right now is it's the little things like I have an email waiting for me there's a, a counseling directory counseling directory in the UK that I'm trying to sign up for I can sign up for it no problem because I'm a part of an organization over there that has membership connections but it won't accept my credit cards because of some weird thing so I have to phone them but because I'm in Canada I can't phone this directory because it will be long distance so like little tiny little niddly little effing things right yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what are you most proud of what I'm most proud of is well writing my book. That's what I'm most proud of. Writing my book and all of the pieces around that. My life is about to fundamentally change. And I like I really anticipate this to be a big calling card for more clients mm-hmm. to build that career for myself. I would say that 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 is the major bucket list piece. But it's been a two-year process. There were times, and I, you're a publisher yourself, aren't you, Anne-Marie? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what it's like when you're trying yeah, to Yeah, it's not easy. It's, yeah, yeah, it's not easy. But, but I also didn't have a publishing house. And so you did mm-hmm. go with a publishing publishing house, which is often about a better way to go unless you're a relentless self-promoter. Yes. <laughs> and, and they require you to self-promote when you're when you're doing a book, but oftentimes a publishing house will give you the backing and really will help get your book placed. And, and you don't have to do all this that work of putting your book online here, putting your book online there and stuff yeah. like that. So... Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's an easier process. There's like a, a friend of mine who is both self-published and traditionally published speaks a great deal about this. She's published with her nonfiction um, kind of folklore work and she's uh, self-published with her fiction work. And it's she said that, you know, they're both monsters, they're both different types of monsters. You, you know, when working with a traditional publisher, there is going to be conversations about having to change your vision with something. But at the same time, there's also that backing. So really, it's it's one of those, which way do you want to go? Do you really want to connect with vision or do you want it to sell? If you want it to sell and your vision, then it's really sitting down doing the work beforehand to figure out, okay, what are, and networking. Networking is a big thing. But this is the other thing too, with self-publishing work. And for, like for those who are really, really, really successful with self-publishing, the networking piece, which is a fundamental business sector, 
platform. I know a lot of business people who they have no clue how to network and they have no clue or they, they network in an inappropriate way. They might be going into a smaller kind of field and uh, they're bringing corporate networking skills in and it's false. And as soon as they, they like, as soon as small businesses sniff corporation on you, they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my one question, I always ask like, what's your one piece of advice? And so since we've talked so much about family and geneograms mm. and ancestors. And if somebody is like, wow, I've never really thought about any of that stuff. Where would you tell them to start? This is why I wrote the book. So I Because <laughs> I looked around and a lot of the books on ancestor work in the kind of metaphysical new age world, they give you traditions to do. They give you practices to do. They give you prayers to say. They give you things to do. And for me, it always comes back to building a, an organic relationship. And so I wrote this with the mind, again, like therapy session of really think about your worldview. Think about what you actually believe culturally and what you believe personally. How are your then practices and traditions to build those relationships and communicate with the dead or spirits in any way going to emerge out of that world for you? And in that way, that connects back to when you're thinking of opening up a business, you know, mm-hmm. when you're starting, because I think, I think in the queer community, there can be a bias sometimes that because we're queer, I'm supposed to be supporting you, come and support me. Why are you not supporting me? There's an assumption of. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean? that's. You have to put out good quality work. This is the thing. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. just you just do. We <laughs> have to be. You know, though I do find that people do in the queer community and also like in other marginalized communities, they really people do want to support people Absolutely. that are in that business. So like, you know, I know in the African American community, if they oh, find yes. somebody that does what they need, they will support that business, which is perfectly legit. <laughs> It totally is. And, and don't uh, don't take what I said to think otherwise. No, it, you have to do the quality work. It's the assumption piece. And that comes from worldview, the worldview piece, I think. And, and so when it comes to business, when you're building a business for yourself, think about, OK, what are your morals? What are your expectations? Mm-hmm. And what are your what are your what are your goals? And are those mm-hmm. goals really grounded in a, a real worldview? Right. It's the same with ancestor work. A lot of people are interested right now, especially in like the witchcraft baking community of working with ancestors because they're seeing it as a form of I can get something right it should be the opposite it's like what um, JFK said right you know what what I can't think what it is now of it's course like, I, it's like, it, I, I think you're referring to it's not what you can do what it's like what it's you not can, what you can do for me it's what can it's we what you can do, do, do for exactly. my country or something something exactly. along that lines we just horrified no. somebody somewhere right. <laughs> no <laughs> <Some insult. laughs> horrible we tried, we tried. So, so that would be, I would say, um, that piece is that, you know, think about like, it doesn't matter if it's business, it doesn't matter if it's spirituality, it doesn't matter if it's about thinking about your ancestors. You know, with the ancestors particularly, it's a strange one because we're all familial, right? Most of them, most of our ancestors, I talk about other forms of ancestor too, but most of our ancestors are familial. So there's already that connection of an expectation of a connection. But if you're connecting with ancestors you haven't physically met yet, you may have met them on a soul level at some other place in life or in, in, in existence. But if you haven't met them physically yet, then it's building that relationship with them by, you know, learning about 
who they are, Mm -hmm. where they're showing up in your life, who they are in you and who you are in them and so on and so on. But I also think we need to also, there's a danger with that. And it's also danger in business too, of losing our own individual identities to those. I see a lot with people who are entrepreneurs, they lose their personal identity to their business versus their business being a manifestation of their own self, right? Yes, absolutely. So Ben, how can people get in touch with you? And also mention where, when, when and where and how they can get your book. Of course. So my book, Ancestral Whispers, is coming out in September uh, in the US. It's coming out on September 8th. If you go to the Llewellyn website, uh, Llewellyn.com, search up Ancestral Whispers. The first couple of chapters are actually available on there to be previewed. So you can get a sense of what the book is about um, before before buying it. To get in touch with me, probably the best place would be my website, benstimpson.com. I also have a Facebook page, Instagram page. I haven't quite done the uh, threads yet. I'm waiting to see on that one. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ben, for being on the show yeah. today. I really appreciate great conversation. And we'll see Ben again on Coming Out and Beyond. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Queer Business Success, the podcast that highlights LGBTQIA businesses. New episodes are published regularly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other listening platforms. Wherever you're listening, take a moment to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Are you an entrepreneur who's also queer? Want to share some of your wisdom and experience with the rest of us? We'd love to have you on the show. Just click the link in the show notes to apply to be a guest. Until next time, queer friends and allies, keep taking care of business. Thank you.